Our scripture tonight is 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. This is God's holy word. Please give careful attention to the reading of it. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Love gives you wings. It inspires you to whistle while you work. It makes a coal miner daydream about taking up French so he can whisper sweet nothings to his amour. It makes a single mother working overtime smirk at the surprise PlayStation 5 that she has in store for her son's birthday. And it made Jacob's seven years of labor for Rachel seem to him but a few days. Well, John says that the love of God, particularly as it's revealed in the New Covenant, is similarly gravity-defying. But whereas romantic love is stoked when the one who knows you best and could cut you the deepest instead desires to share life with you in sickness and health, And whereas a mother's love is made light in heavy trials by her maternal instincts to nurture her little ones at any expense to herself, the love of God that John is talking about here has its own special ingredient. It has that makes the yoke of this love easy and its burden light. And so, in verse 1, John begins by making two points that lay the groundwork for him to unveil the fuel that gives our love flight. He writes, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. First, if you believe Jesus, if, you, if, if who you believe Jesus to be and who you believe the Christ of God to be are the same thing, you have been born of God. And this is a theme throughout John's gospel, too. He records Jesus saying it himself in John 5, 24, and our Lord prefaces it with two trulies. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and he does not come to judgment, but has passed from death into life. And this point makes perfect sense with John coming right off of talking about how perfect love casts off fear in the previous section of the book. Fear not and believe. The work has been done by the one who was sent to do it. That's what Christ, that's what, uh, Christ means, the, the anointed one who goes on the mission to save his people from their sins. And our part is merely to receive and believe him. 
and the work that he has accomplished. And by the way, if you do believe it, that too is a miracle. This is a work of the Spirit, and it means that you have been born again. The order was not. Jesus did the work and made it possible for you to maybe be saved. And all of heaven was biting its nails to see if you could dig up deep inside yourself and would do the good work of faith that would thankfully complete your salvation. No. The order was, we contributed the sin that made it our, that made us need saving. Christ did the work to fulfill the law and take its curse for his people. And then, by the Spirit, you were born with new believing life. And so now, as you see belief growing in the very marrow of your being, you don't praise yourself. You praise the one who begat you to new life. And this order is really John's first point here. Because with the language he uses, he's not primarily saying that every believer has been been begotten by God, meaning that God is our parent. That's true. But John is really saying that every believer is begotten from God, meaning that God is the origin of our birth. In other words, John's flow of thought here is not disconnected from verse 419, where he said, we love because he first loved us. So belief, then, is not some special category of work that God gave us to earn our justification as some sort of easier way than obeying the law. Belief is the means by which you are united to Christ, but not the grounds by by which we are. The grounds or the foundation, the reason, the origin by which you have been born again is the love of God. And John derives this point, he derives this from a second point, really a principle. Excuse me, he, he derives from this a second point. Everyone who loves the Father also loves whoever has been born from him. So the begotten one loves the Father's other begotten ones. The one who believes that he has been loved first while he was unlovely is going to have a particular kind of love for the rest of of the children of God who are also aware that they were loved first while they were still unlovely. The Christian will have a special place in his heart for people like himself or herself who know what it's like to be loved with that kind of humble and freeing love. To love God, then, by nature is going to be mixed with loving the children of God. Plus, anyone who has the slightest clue what it means to be a parent knows that if you have a problem with my kid, you have a problem with me. This goes especially for the father's preeminent son. Out of the love for this son, the father has given his Christ the hardest job in the world to elevate him to the loftiest position. He wanted his son to be elevated to glory as he once was, So he humbled himself and laid such a mission on him that no one could ever be said to have worked harder or sacrificed more than his son. No one would be proven, ever be proven to be more fit to rule on the throne of David 
than this son, as the one who has greater wisdom than Solomon, as the one who has compassion, the compassion of one who has been tempted and abused but was yet victorious. And so the father's love for Jesus now essentially says, I put my son through the crucible of fire and you will not disrespect him. You will not count the blood of my son as nothing and trod it underfoot. As if my son was just one of many paths to me. As if I sent my son to die, though there were other ways, how dare you? How dare you treat your sin as if it could have just as easily been made white by meditating on Buddha's teachings or by covering it up with other good works or by putting any other cheap band-aid over the problem of your sin. So the love of God that elevated his son in this way is so important to the father that one cannot possibly say they love the father without believing that Jesus is the Christ. But this principle that the one who loves the father also loves his children also extends to all the children of God. Because though there's only one Christ, the Father is also raising all of us up in love. And so we read in verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. And so we get another principle here. We know that obedience to God's commands ought to look like loving His children, God's children because the Father is also raising us up in love. We are being disciplined because what father doesn't discipline his child? We are being refined by fiery trials, and so Peter tells us not to be surprised as they come upon us to test us as though something strange were happening to us. But we are to instead rejoice, to rejoice insofar as we share in Christ's sufferings so we may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So the Father is loving us with perfect paternal love that cannot just let his sons and daughters occupy their time with frivolities and idols. The Father is making us men and women that will one day rule and reign with Christ, even over the angels in heaven, and we will reign in righteousness and humility, always remembering that when we were enemies of our father, the king, he pursued us to give us an inheritance that we did not deserve, and he's now making us fit to inherit it. So one cannot say to this father, man, I love you, but I hate all these kids you're raising up. I just, I can't stand them. We have to say to that person, be real. That person does not love the father. How could that person genuinely love the father if they have no love for the ones that he's all about. There's even an imperatival nuance here in verse 2, a sternness in John's language about the necessity of this connection. This is naturally how it must work, so that in whatever way we are loving God and obeying him, it's going to look like loving his children. So John says in verse 3, for this is the love of God. That is, this is the content of the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. They're not heavy 
or weighty or severe. Now, you might have expected him to say here, for this is the love of God, that we love one another. Because that is what he's saying, and he has said it explicitly multiple times. But instead, he gives us the same thing, but said in a way that drives us to think a bit deeper about the nature of the love of God for us and the nature of the love that we are born of and by which we love one another. First, our love of God is a commandment-keeping kind of love. As Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we saw this when John taught us about practicing righteousness and purifying ourselves in chapter 3. Second, and now we begin to really get into the meat of John's point here, as we see something that's not always intuitive, the keeping of God's commandments is not meant to be taxing. Obedience is meant to be light and liberating. So obeying is not like the child that says, I'm sitting down at the table like you said, but on the inside, I'm standing up. It's, it's, it should be, oh, it's, it's time to eat? I'm so thankful that I have a parent that cooks for me. I'm hungry, and I expect that what, whether dinner is like the third Friday feast at our pastor's house, or if it's leftovers, or if it's a couple of hot and ready Little Caesars pizza that mom picked up after an exhausting day of work, I'm thankful and glad to eat it, and I'm happy to tell mom or dad, thank you, because I know it makes them feel good, and I'm happy to be a good example for my siblings who might struggle with being happy with whatever they get to eat. I'm sitting on the outside, and I'm also sitting on the inside. So while obedience may certainly have difficulties attached to it at times, it stems from a love like Christ's, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Our obedience, likewise, counts it all joy when we fall and when we meet trials of various kinds, even the epic trial of Hamburger Helper Night, which few agree makes a great meal. So the content of loving God is persisting in the kind of love which carries a spiritually light burden. And learning to love like this is learning to enjoy doing things that you ought to be doing. Now with this, John has introduced another aspect of what love is not. But this category of lightness rather than heaviness is more like a category that all other aspects of love fall under, just as the elements of what love is not can all be understood as characteristics of hate. So the lightness of our load is like when Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress drops the backpack of his burden. And the different facets of hate we've seen are like the burdens that Christian has been carrying on his shoulders. If we look back through some of the lessons that John has taught us about love, through the prism of this easy yoke and this light burden, we see that love does not live in the darkness of lies, sugarcoating sin, and so it, it isn't jealous of others' good works, and it isn't satisfied with cheap solutions to sin. Instead, love walks unburdened by the heaviness 
of bitterness and dishonesty. And love is free to confess that only in Christ and the cross and the resurrection can I truly and justly lay down that weight of my guilt before God. And love doesn't talk the talk without walking the walk, wanting to look loving without the motivation to be loving. No, love goes to work like Christ has in truly taking on the flesh and truly giving it up to be broken for his people. Love is unburdened by that contradiction of being a talker and not a walker. And then last week, John taught us that love is not fearful. It has confidence that when we see God face to face, there won't be terror in Christ, but a celebration. It won't be under the weight of the law, but rather we will be standing on victory in Christ. Have you ever noticed this easiness about mature Christians? How there's often this this odd lightheartedness about them? There may, of course, be trials weighing them down, but so many mature Christians are also very quick to smile. And they don't treat you like giving their time to you is a burdened love, a love that they're putting so much effort into because being there for you is so draining and so heavy, and they would rather be elsewhere, but they will stay against their will and take up their cross to love you. Mature Christians that you look up to don't really treat you like that, do they? Jesus certainly doesn't treat us that way. So if we think God's commands to love one another are a burden, we need to understand them better. Now, there are, of course, hard things about obeying God's commands. They grate against our sinful nature. They grate against the world. And plus, we are finite. And we have a finite amount of time and energy to give to others. So there will often be a cost to be counted in obeying God. And if you give yourself a lot to serving others, even from the heart, you're going to feel burnt out from time to time, and even like you could use a brief vacation occasionally. And that is okay. But the law, in and of itself, doesn't make you feel bad after doing it. It's not regretful. As we sang in Psalm 1, Yea, blessed is he who makes God's law his portion and delight, and meditates upon that law with gladness day and night. When we're loving one another, we're getting to do things that make sense, and and that we were born to do, and that we were born again to do. So his commandments are not burdensome. And now John takes it one level deeper. He takes us in the elevator really down to the basement floor of how love gives us wings. In verse 4, we find that the foundation of it all is that everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome or conquered the world, our faith. Faith is that special ingredient that defies gravity, that walks on water, that overcomes the world. Faith makes obedience light because faith is what marks us and makes real to us that we are not under the covenant of works. We are in the covenant of grace. Under the covenant of works, we felt the weight and burden of having to be perfect. And there was nothing unjust about that. But the law 
as the covenant stipulation for our relationship with God is heavier than a black hole for sinners, dragging all who fall short of it even in one point down into the pit of despair, it justifies only the perfectly righteous. And so, as a whole, it has only ever vindicated Jesus. But faith, as the new covenant stipulation of our relationship with God, floats above that black hole so that we're free to look upon its righteous standards and practice them without being sucked down into the mire of condemnation. By faith in Christ's fulfilling the covenant of works, in our place we escape the toil of obedience and the righteous mercilessness of the law. And we may instead practice obedience with the freedom to make missteps as we learn to walk in victory over the world. And so John concludes in verse 5, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? When I went to Temecula Valley High School, I ran cross-country, and our team, before I was even a freshman, had won the regional championships year after year since, like, forever. They were, there were victory banners lining the gym going around all four walls above the bleachers. And the reason was that we had coaches that were just on a different level. They had us running just way more than other teams. And plus, we had these hills and switchbacks and, and on and around campus that we would train on that just gave us a tremendous advantage racing on non-level tracks. And so the training was substantial, and the standard was really high, and God's laws are substantial, and the standard is perfection. But one burden that was light for our running team was that we never really had to wonder if we were going to win a regional championship. That was a foregone conclusion. So we didn't fret about it. Our goals were always centered around beating our own personal records by running faster than last time. And doing so was tough, but it felt great. And Christians, you are on a team where victory is a foregone conclusion. And so our love and obedience becomes lighter. In a sense, God's commandments to us become not just laws, but promises. These moral laws are what God promises that he is in the process of making our hearts love. And the reps God calls us to put in and practicing the law is a tremendous advantage to us as God's people. It's like how Israel's having God's law was a tremendous advantage to them. Paul says this in Romans 2 and 3, as the question arises, what advantage does the Jew have? What advantage did an Israelite have if they were like the child who didn't want to sit down to dinner and may and said, I may be circumcised on the outside, but in my heart I am not. Paul says they had much advantage still and in every way because they were entrusted with the oracles of God. They got to train on the hills and switchbacks that could have made them stand head and shoulders over the other nations in righteousness. And there was nothing wrong with those oracles or laws. As redemptive history unfolded, the law proved for them to be a heavy noose around their neck. And eventually it got them sent into exile. But the benefit of their having those oracles in God was that in them, 
their spiritual eyes were turned back to the promise of the seed that would overcome where we all fail. And those oracles also turned their gaze forward to Christ arriving, to sit on the throne of David in righteousness and lead his people into genuine righteousness so that the law would be written on our hearts and so that circumcision of the flesh would also become a baptism into new life. By faith in Christ, then, beloved, may your growth in the love of God be an easy yoke and a light burden so that we might learn to love our, the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and strength and mind. And may this faith-filled love give us wings to love our neighbor as ourselves. Amen.